Matthew chapter 18, we're going to begin in verse 21, and once you find that, in honor of God and His Word, let's stand together and let's hear God's Word. My friend Mike Sierra over at Grace um, Church of Orange, he um, quips that this portion of the service is the only infallible, inerrant portion of the service. So what's going to follow will not be, but this will be the best and most infallible, inerrant part of the service. We're going to start in verse 21, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will, I, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to you, every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Uh, you know, seven times is a fairly generous offer. Seven times. Seven times. Forgiving someone seven times for various offenses against you is a very generous offer. When you think about being wronged by somebody, and some of you don't have to think about it because you, you've lived in, in situations where you have been wronged, whether a minor offense or a major offense against you. When you think about being wronged by a single person and going through the work of feeling that pain and the grief, assessing the loss, feeling the anger, and then working through forgiving, that seeing that person as a human being, giving up your rights of retaliation, revising your feelings about that person, the second time 
is likely just as much work as, and as much anger, but you've done it before. You know the path, and so you walk that path. When you're wronged by the same person a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, by the time you get to seven, you've done some serious forgiving. Especially if you stopped enabling that person and your relationship has deteriorated to no fault of your own. But by number seven, you'd think you'd be entitled to maybe cease to view that person as a human being anymore. Like that they presumed upon your patience quite a bit. That at some point you think that you might be entitled to some anger and some resentment and even some retaliation, some vengeance. Inflamed with the worst possible thoughts about someone who's become non-human. Because seven is a fairly generous offer. Can we not agree on that? This is Peter's offer in Matthew 18, 21. I am willing to forgive my brother seven times. The interesting thing is that rabbis were not silent about how often you should forgive someone. In the ancient world, rabbis actually had an ongoing discussion about how often should you forgive someone who sins against you. And you know what their answer was? Three times. You're, you're allowed, three times is what you should be allowed. This was what the rabbi said. There, there's at least three different rabbinic texts that we could quote right now that talk about, hey, three times, and then you're off the hook. Then an eye for an eye. And Peter might be weighing in on this because Jesus is saying you should forgive. Jesus has just talked about if your brother sins, go to your brother. And if he, he doesn't listen to you, then take another person with you. And if he doesn't listen to them, then tell it to the gathered assembly. That's three times. And then Peter says, well, what about if, what seven's the number of perfection? What if we put it up to seven? Expecting to get, hey, good job, Peter. Brownie points, you get a star in your Bible for that one. You got seven, that, that's taking it to the next level. Way to go, Peter, high five. But Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, not seven, but 70 times seven. Now, the numbers, as you might get, the numbers are not as important because it's not seven times, it's 70 times seven, and that might be 77, or it might be 70 times seven, 490 times. Keep, keep count, right? The point is not to keep count. The point is that he's making, he's making a larger point. If you go back to Genesis chapter four, uh, chapter 4, there's this uh, Cain. Cain has the mark of Cain. And if Cain is avenged, the Lord will, will avenge upon him uh, seven times. But Lamech is this guy who comes around. And it says about Lamech, it's a sad story about Lamech. Lamech says uh, he was wounded by a man and he kills the man. He's struck by a boy, and Lamech then kills the boy. And then Lamech turns to his wives, multiple, he's already fallen off the horse here, and he says with a bit of braggadocia, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech will be avenged 70 times seven. And Jesus here is making a point that the kingdom of God is not going to be about vengeance times 70. It's going to be about forgiveness times 70. And then he tells a very difficult parable. And I hope as you heard this parable this morning, you got a sense of just how difficult it might have been to hang around Jesus. We were talking as we were praying this morning with the worship team. Uh, look, as I was doing the work this week and thinking about this parable, 
Hanging around Jesus would not have been good. When you were expecting a star in your Bible, you got it bumped up another notch. And Jesus reminded that the, the kingdom is a place where generosity is infinite, but the cost of following is also infinite. That the generosity of God, the grace of God is limitless, but the cost in following Jesus is also limitless. And it will push us to the point and even beyond the point of what we are able. So let's take a look. You guys ready to hear a story this morning? And actually, or to explain a story, remember that we don't, when, when you walk into your grandkids' room and they say, Grandpa, tell, they don't say, tell me some facts, right? They say, tell me a story, because somehow these stories land on us in ways that simply hearing the facts do not. And so, this, this morning we have a story of a really generous king and a servant who cannot seem to find mercy He can receive it, but he cannot give it out. So let's open Matthew chapter 18 and verse 23, and let's hear what Jesus tells this story that he tells, a story about debt, Matthew 18, 23. You guys with me this morning? All right, 4th of July, I know you got a barbecue to go to afterwards. You got some things that you have to get ready. I understand that. We're going to be done here. You know, we've got a little bit of time. We're just going to look at God's word. We think that God is significant, and I'm glad you guys are with us today. And if you're watching from home, welcome. We're so glad to have you as well. 1823, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And this idea would be that you have this king, someone who's over a lot, and he's got a number of servants or slaves, but these servants are responsible for maybe being tax collectors or toll collectors. And so he wants to settle accounts with them. The king is very wealthy and very powerful because his slaves, his servants were entrusted with great sums of money. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now you're quickly in your mind doing your foreign, ex- foreign currency exchange. Like what is 10,000 talents? Well, a talent, one talent. So the going rate, denarii are a day's wage. That's, that's a hundred, that's really, that, that's, it's, um, uh, it's about a hundred bucks is what a denarii is. Well, a talent is 6,000 denarii. A talent is 6,000 denarii. So one talent, one talent is worth $600,000, okay? One talent. This slave owes 10,000 talents. Now, in case you don't want to do the math, that's $6 billion, Okay, that's six billion with a B. I know now we're talking about trillions and it's driving me crazy, but billion, six billion dollars. And the point is with Jesus is not, the numbers are not important. What is important is that this debt is far beyond, by the way, 10,000, 10,000, the talent was the largest, it was the most amount of money in one coin. It was more like a, it was more like a, a rock is what it was. Uh, 10,000 talents is 210 metric tons of silver. 
210 metric tons of silver. The point is, and just to give you a little bit of a sense of how much this is, um, the nation of Israel during the reign of Herod the Great paid to Rome 600 talents a year. And this slave owes 10,000 talents. The point that Jesus is making is not that this is a real, this is actually totally unrealistic. No one even would be able to lend out $6 billion. And if you could lend out $6 billion, what would it matter if it went anywhere, right? There's so much wealth there. But the point is that, the point that Jesus is making is this is, a, this is an astronomical, unrepayable debt. It's not a debt that can be repaid. It's theore- the number is theoretical rather than practical. So this servant, this servant, this is a great story so far, this servant had run up a $6 billion tab and presumably had little to show for it. I mean, you, gotta, you, have to be, you have to be really wasteful in order not to have anything to show for, for having a $6 billion loan. You think you could peel off at least a couple million, right? At the end of the day, but he's got nothing to show. But the hearers of the, again, the parable, parables are not always about reality. They're about what they stir up inside of us. And this as the hearers hear this parable, they hear about this man that has an unrepayable debt, and they know what happens in the ancient world. You knew what would happen if you had a debt that could not be repaid. And we hear about it. Were it you personally, if you had a debt that could not re- be repaid, what would oftentimes happen is you would get thrown in prison, and then your family would have to repay. So you would get thrown in prison and they'd throw some torturers in with you to torment you and so that there would be a little heat on like, hey, they can rot in prison for a long time, but oh, I guess they're being tortured, so maybe we should get on that repayment plan and get on that. That was the best case scenario if you had a debt you could not repay. Worst case scenario, if it was an unrepayable debt, they not only would throw you into prison, but they would take your wife and they would sell her into slavery. They would take your kids and they would sell them into slavery. They would take all of your assets, they would liquidate them all and repay the debt. Different world we live in. There's no bankruptcy in the ancient world. It was just Guido and Knuckles making you an offer you couldn't refuse. Right? So here's so this is the story. What you're hearing the story about this man who has an unrepayable debt. What will become of him? Look at 1825. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had to make payment to be made. So worst case scenario, this man is going to be liquidated. His whole family's going to be liquidated. A far cry from we hold these truths to be self-evident, Right? Okay, the ancient world was not a democracy. There were no human rights. Maybe Roman rights, but not human rights. So this man, his family, were all going to be liquidated, erased, handed for cash to repay the enormous debt that their father had incurred. So 1826, what will become of this man? So the servant fell on his knees imploring the king, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. It says that he down onto his knees, he, pros, he, he prostrates himself 
himself in the of the man. Get those words confused. His knees in front of the man. Jesus said, thank you, Jackie. I see you. Pay back everything. His plan is, at least that's what he offers. He would theoretically be forever. His debt is so high. His plea is for clemency, a stay of execution. But as we read further, but get. Pity the that served him for the now the ESP is gonna say a little ESP is a great pulls punch says out of what it says is moved compassion. For compassion is the word for most for your gut. Uh, are you moved gut? And is moved to compassion. This is he down. The implication he sees for a moment what's going to happen to the man? What's going to happen to his family? What is going to happen to his children? What's going to happen? looks at him and he pities. He actually has compassion from this custom angry might not be pain. So it's not passion. Per person in the gospel per time used. Only in, in is moved compassion is Jesus. You know this Jesus moved in people to receive this this man and what's going to become happens in his heart and in his he says. We're not going to do that. We're not going to up a reason. We death. So, King, there's this of the ring, but right and mercy. The thing that would likely be King a reputation of renown beyond and that patient would go far and man who had a six billion dollar debt it's forgiven and he's been released that debt is not just about the man but that's a question of the king maybe the compassion but all that is character he released the debt he simply refused he didn't he didn't work out a payment plan for pennies on the dollar he simply forgave the debt and then the man had what he had and no more and he had a clean slate 
And the hearers, so at this point in the parable, if you're a hearer of the story, as Jesus originally told this, Jesus had set up with some tent to the man because the man has this unpayable debt. You know what's going to happen to him. And you're rooting for him. And now the tension is relieved. He has been forgiven. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Who is this king? That's a great story, Jesus. You'd recognize the dire strait of the man. You'd have some sense of relief. We're rooting for the man to get some resolution because who among us has not needed some compassion at some point in our lives? But then the story takes a bit of a turn. 1828. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, here's another thing about uh, Jewish literature of the first century. There are actually many passages in rabbinic literature of what to do when someone owes you, and one of the things is to go out into the street and to choke them. It's actually one of the things. Believe it or not, the ancient world is not a friendly place, okay? So, hands around the neck, in the street, making a point, pay what you owe. All right. Now, the amounts are important, are they not? And the amounts are important. So, a, a, a denarii, what is, okay, quiz time. A denarii is worth what? One day's wage, which is about, in our money today, somewhere between 100 and 120, 100 bucks. We're going to round it there. It's easier to do math. Thank you, Mary Beth. 100 days of labor for $100 each. You do the math, it's 10,000 bucks. That's what he owes him, 10,000 bucks. Now, I've heard some paraphrase this story that, because this is an analogy for God and for us, that God forgives us of all of our debt, and then, or that the slave, this other slave owes him like 20 bucks. Um, and um, that's not what Jesus, 20 bucks is an insignificant amount. Like probably right now, you could probably open up your wallet, maybe you've got 20 bucks and you could pay that back easy, or maybe you have a couple friends who could get together and put together 20. It's not 20 bucks, this is 10 grand. It's a little more down to earth. Now, here's the thing about the, the amounts, okay? This amount is not abstract, is it? Just think about the two, two amounts. If I said, if I said, I'm going to give you $6 billion, what will you do with it? And your answer is, what would I not do with it, right? I could do anything I want. It's, it's more money than I could even imagine. I mean, I could count up and I could think a million, and maybe you're like, at what, and this is a good exercise, at what point is money theoretical to you? Like, maybe you think, okay, I can, I can understand, like, I can understand buying a house for, you know, 500, 600, $800,000, should we keep going up? Please no, okay? Or like a million, or like, at what point is it theoretical? Like 10 million? At what point is just more money than you could even imagine? 20 million, 100 million? 500 million? I mean, we're at 6 billion here. It's theoretical. What wouldn't I do with 6 billion dollars? But if I asked you, hey, I'm going to give you 10,000 dollars, what would you do? Now we're in business, right? Now we're, we're in the ideas of, I might have practical ideas of what that amount is and what I need to do with it. You might be thinking about, look, I might want to remodel my kitchen. Or maybe I've got a, a kid in college, I might want to pay for some college. 
or, or grad school. I might want to pay for grad school, or maybe I want to make an investment. $10,000 is a very practical amount. You know what it is. It's not theoretical anymore. It's a very pragmatic account, amount. I might pay off my car. I might invest in a business. I might remodel my kitchen. It's a concrete amount. It's something that we can understand. And I think in this sense, Jesus is going to make a distinction between our own debt that we owe to God, which is more than we could ever imagine or even know, right? It's more than we could ever imagine or even know or even get our head around. But what has happened to me at the hands of someone else, that I know. That is not theoretical. I wake up in the morning and I think about it. I go through my day and I'm angry about it. It's something that I can, I can wrap my head around it because I've been angry about it for a long time, right? Six billion, what I owe to God, is out of my, I can't even put my head around it, but what someone else has done to me, I feel that. I know what that is. I don't know what six billion is, but I know what this is. And that might be why this slave goes out. We, we're never given a reason why the slave goes out. 1829. By the way, for me, $10,000 is a lot of money. I'll just tell you that. $10,000 is a lot of money. I mean, six billion is a lot of money, but what do I know? Yeah, right? But 10 grand, that's a lot of money. I, I take that. I know what that is. 1829. So his fellow servant pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So the fellow slave pleads. And here's what Jesus' parable does really well, is that Jesus is going, the, the words that he pleads with, be patient with me and I will repay, are almost exactly the same words that the first slave pleads with his king with. Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Now he's choking this guy in the street, and the guy says to him, be patient with me, I will repay you. And obviously Jesus is using this to juxtapose the, juxtapose the two situations and show the injustice of this. So he's unwilling to forgive the debt or even a loan, remodif- a loan modification. I mean, how about a payment plan? So he puts him into prison. He doesn't throw his whole family and he just puts him in prison so his family can repay him the debt. Cough up enough cash to get him out. Now this might have all gone well and good, but look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Now, Again, this is where I'm going to take a I love the ESV. It's a great translation, but I do think they pull a punch here. Because the, what, the, what the fellow slaves are is not greatly distressed. What they are is pained and grieved. They see what takes place, and they grieve. They see what the other slave does, and they grieve because they've seen what has happened, and now they're pained, they're grieved. They saw what happened, and they were hit in the gut too. 
They had heard the, the rumor of the merciful king. The story of grace had gotten out. This man had been forgiven of an unimaginable amount. His family was spared being liquidated. And now the fellow slaves were witnessing something beyond their understanding of a person who had been forgiven of so much. They were sad, sorrowful, distressed, vexed, grieved. And what they saw had a lasting impact on them that they could not shake. They were grieved. And they go to their king and they explain what they had seen. And then verse 32. So the master summons him and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, one more thing. Again, I, I know I'm the, the ESV, I'm, I'm really taking the ESV to, ta- to the woodshed today. Um, but in, in Greek, when the king calls the slave, he says, you evil slave, you evil servant. And the first words out of his mouth are, all that debt. All that debt I forgave you. It's emphatic that the king, the king is not just running a line in front of him. He says, hey, you evil, you evil slave, all that debt. All that debt. I forgave you. I forgave you when you pleaded with me. And then it says the king became enraged. He revoked the cancellation of the earlier debt. And then he hands the man over to those in charge of the prison, the jailers. Another word is the tormentors. He hands them over to the tormentors. I mean, I don't, there's, we'll get to the king in just a second. And then 1835, what Jesus says. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen, let's leave, right? Like, we all get it. And we're like, what? And, what is, and, and, and now, we, now we come to a stunned, silent crowd like, oh my gosh. I mean, look, I just said I'd go seven times. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this? What, the first thing, take a deep breath, let it out, because there's, there's tension with this. Is there not tension with this parable? Grandpa, don't tell me this story, <laughs> right? This is, a, this is a tough story. This is a tough story, especially if this is analogous for God. And I would just say this, this is not, the king is not a, a picture of God, it's an analogy, okay? But I do wanna, I do wanna get um, to the, the difficulty of this passage. And the, the point of this parable is meant to introduce you to a servant in trouble and that you begin to root for that servant, right? You, we get the rhetorical value of what Jesus has done and putting it in this order because he introduces his character, we root for this character, we're relieved when the, when the tension is off, but then we're horrified at what this character does. And the point, the point that Jesus is trying to make, and we're, we're, we're jarred by the pettiness and vindictiveness of that very same servant, And the point that this parable is making is that anyone who is forgiven of all of that, it ought to have some kind of transformative change on their life. 
We're not legalists, and Jesus is not a legalist, but at the same time, we have, to, we have to imagine that anyone who is forgiven of all of that, we would have to imagine that it would have some kind of impact on them. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is counting on, that anyone who is forgiven of that great a debt, that there would be a great impact on them. And this is the thing about parables, right? It's indirect communication. If I were simply to tell you, you need to forgive that person, you'd be like, hey, why don't you take a hike? Hey, pastor guy, why don't you just get out of here? Why don't I, if you have a volume button, I can just turn you down, right? If I were to just come out directly and tell you this parable, tell you this story, parables have a way of coming in the back door. Because in this parable, it's self-evident, to quote Thomas Jefferson, that this man ought to have been changed. It ought to have done something. There's three words that stand out in this parable about the king. In 1827, just look at this real quick. In 1827, it says, and out of pity for the compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave that debt. And then when in verse 34, when the servant comes back, in anger, his master delivered him to jailers until he, uh, actually, sorry, verse 33. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? Compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. Three words that are used of the king. And this is the point of the parable, that God's prior action, because the king here is in the image of God, that God is analogous, or the king is analogous to God. And this king that God gives us, prior action, that he, he is compassionate, he forgives, and he has mercy. Compassion, forgiveness, mercy. The Apostle Paul later will bundle these three terms, compassion, forgiveness, mercy, into one concept and one word, grace. By grace, you have been saved. What is grace? Grace is God's compassion on you, when he looks at you, he doesn't just look down at you and have pity. He looks down at you and he's moved. Your plight moves him. You are not yet what you ought to be. And so he says, what they need, what they need, what's the most transformative thing that I could give them? I know, I'll give them guilt. No! I know, I'll just, I'll kind of whack them around a little bit until they get right. No, what's the most powerful change agent in all of the human history, in all of the universe. It's the self-sacrificing, gracious love of God. That person, he looks at you, he has compassion on you. He has mercy on you, and he says, what is it they need in order to transform? Compassion, mercy, forgiveness, grace. It's the most powerful change agent in all the universe. If you want to change someone, if you want someone's life to transform, you can try to guilt them, and you probably have. You can try to manipulate them. You probably have. How's that going? Probably not great. If you want to see real change in someone's life, then you, give, then you offer them grace, compassion, mercy, forgiveness. The 
kingdom of God comes with limitless grace. Why 10,000 talents? The talent was the largest coin. In the, accounting, in the accounting language of the ancient world, the largest factor that you could do anything by was 10,000. It wasn't that they couldn't imagine a bigger number, but in all accounting texts, the largest you could get was 10,000. So it's not really a $6 billion debt. It's just the largest debt you could ever imagine. It's the largest debt we could calculate. The kingdom comes with limitless grace. And I don't know what you've done in your life. I don't know what's happened to you in your life. But I will tell you this. When you follow Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, when Jesus comes in, the kingdom comes in and the kingdom is a place of limitless grace. There's nothing you have done and there's nothing that has been done to you that can separate you from the love of God and the transformation that God has in your life or the compassion, mercy, and grace that he has for you. The kingdom of God comes with limitless grace, forgiveness of an unbelievable debt. And this parable gives that very well, but it also tells us the other side of this that the kingdom of God is indeed limitless. It also comes not only with limitless grace, but it also comes with, a, it, with an expected demand. And that demand is limitless. Come follow me. Give everything you have and follow me. It's a limitless demand. And when you sign up, you get limitless grace, but there's also a give everything you have. It will cost you everything. Now, I got to tell you this. This passage, as a Bible professor, great passage. This passage, as a, pa as a pastor, I'm kind of at the end of my rope here. Like, I can tell you how much a talent is. I can tell you how much that costs. I can tell you what that is. But telling you how to forgive someone, like, you need a Sherpa guide for that. You need somebody to take you up the mountain with that. And look, I got to tell you, I, I have done, in my lifetime, I feel like I've done some forgiving. I would imagine that many of you in here have done more forgiving than that. I've done some work. I've had to get to a point where I stop looking at someone as non-human, where I've had to forgive, I had to take account, where I've had to give up my rights for vengeance. I've had to give up my, my desire to see them hurt. This is the work of forgiveness. It's not, a, it's not easy work, it's, and it's daily work, and it's also work that you kind of revisit often. As if you've been wronged in any kind of way, you probably know that the work of forgiveness is not a one-time thing. It's work that is ongoing. It's work that takes will to a decision, a commitment. And as a pastor... Look, as a, as a professor, I can tell you how much a hundred denirai is. But telling you how to forgive, it's a different matter. And I would, like, I would like to encourage you, there's a couple books, because as we sit here, and if we read this right, we're like, well, I better get at the work of forgiving. Because the point here is that you have been forgiven of a, of a vast amount that you don't even know how much that is. You might not even be able to wrap your head around that ever. 
how much God has poured out grace upon you. But God is also saying that not only should you receive this, but you should also reflect this. And this is one of the interesting things about the kingdom, that God says, hey, you're going to receive this, and I'm, I have this character, and I'm going to pour it out on you, but I'm also going to imagine that you are going to begin to exhibit that same character. That you're going to begin to exhibit the same graciousness with which I've treated you. You are going to begin to love one another. You're going to begin to bear each other's burdens. If anyone has a sin, that it might be forgiven. You are going to be about restoring that. You're going to be about loving your enemies and restoring your enemies and reconciling people together because that's what I'm about. And this is what the point of the parable is, that if you're going to come into the kingdom and you're going to follow Jesus, that there is an implication that the character of Jesus is going to rub off on you. And look, that might take a longer time or a shorter time, and that we're not here. God can sort all that out. But the point is that eventually there is transformation that takes place as we reflect on the vast amount that we've been forgiven that we also might forgive. So please understand that this is a complex issue, and it's important, and I'm not going to tell you in five minutes or ten minutes or even thirty minutes how to forgive, but I, I would... So Lewis Smedes has written two books on forgiveness. The first book was called Forgive and Forget, in which he explains why it's important to forgive psychologically. Turns out it releases a lot of stress. People who don't forgive end up dying earlier in their life, that they, they store. Anyway, we don't have to get into it, but Lewis Smedes, Forgive and Forget. But he also, the second book is um, called The Art of Forgiveness, in which he thoughtfully walks through the process about how one goes about doing the soul-searching work of forgiveness. Now, maybe you're in here, and you've, you've done the hard work of forgiving someone who has wronged you in the past. And I would just say, look, you are not alone in that. There are, your brothers and sisters here are called to that, and many have done that work. And I would just say, as you continue to do that work, you are not alone. The Lord loves you. Your community loves you. And I want to encourage you to continue to do that work. And if there is, and if you're here and there's someone that you, you know, you know as you sit here that you have not forgiven. Someone has wronged you and you look forward to the day that they hurt like you hurt. Like that's not forgiveness. That's vengeance. You're looking forward to the day when they eat it, okay? Now, that's what we call looking forward to vengeance. The Bible says vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we already know that it's not our job to do the weeding, right? It's not our job to do the weeding. The tares grow alongside. And I, to you, I want to say, there is limitless grace in the kingdom for you. There's limitless grace in the kingdom for you. The only thing God might ask is that you let that in. That you let that in and you let that make your heart turn into a heart flesh and that you one day come to the look at that person with compassion. 
And I don't know where you're at today with that. But what I want to pray this on a place of compassion towards that person. Let's pray together. Father, this because we want to know you better. Many of us are here because we've given our lives to you, Jesus. We've said we will follow you. We'll follow you anywhere, like the song said that we sang this morning. You are the refuge that we do. And Father, we, we do also know that living in this world, there are going to be times wronged, and there are times that even wrongs are going to come at great expense to us, whether it's monetarily, whether it's our reputation, whether it's just words that are meant to hurt. That being wronged is painful. And Father, we take a We also come this morning, Father, because we recognize that we have been forgiven of an uncalculable amount. And Father, we pray that that would have its way in our hearts, that that would make its way into our heart, and that we might extend that same compassion, that same mercy, that same forgiveness to someone who may have wronged us. Father, we understand that that is a path that is difficult, and so I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray for myself, I pray for everybody in this room, this is not an easy thing, and we do ask that you would at least, at least give us the desire to forgive. If we can't forgive, at least help us to want to forgive, even if we don't know how to. And let that be our starting point this morning. But Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning. Thank you for this passage. It is very challenging. Jesus, we recognize that you are our king. There might be times where you're our buddy, our friend, but sometimes there are times where you are just hard to be with, but we sign up for it. We want to know you better. We thank you that you would have compassion on us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.